This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Our scripture reading is from Hebrews 4, chapter 14, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 6, verse 12. So if you would stand for the reading of the word, if you're able. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Or land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. That we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of a better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and saving the saints, serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, 
but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, kind of, you're always making decisions when you break up uh, a book, kind of how you want to break it up and which parts you want to kind of hone in on and spend some time, which parts that go together, um, which, uh, where do you want to cover more material? Because um, it'd be nice, you know, we could, we could spend, uh, we could spend a couple years working through Hebrews if we really wanted to kind of get into the weeds, so to speak. But when we decide to do a book like this in 12 or 13 weeks, we kind of have to make decisions on, on how to chop it up a little bit. And I wanted to put, I wanted to put this uh, section together. The reason why Ben read all of chapter six, kind of a little bit leading into that, and then, um, or all of chapter five, and then a little bit of chapter six on the end is because I, I feel like this is sort of like the, uh, uh, these are all connected together. This is sort of like a, a broad discussion where he, he starts something, he kind of sidetracks, and then he kind of goes back to why he made that sidetrack and, and sort, of, sort of gets us sort of back on track. So we kind of have the beginning of the topic, we have the excursus with the sidetrack, and then he kind of comes back to make his point. And so I thought it would be good to just cover this section uh, to, to sort of follow that line of discussion. And then next, our, our next series in, or our next sermon in Hebrews will, will kind of be focused on like one topic in, in sort of one chapter um, so we, we, co- we cover a little bit more because I think we're following the, the flow of the argument here. And the, we're almost there. We're almost there, Gene. I know that's your, your favorite passage. I, I, uh, I expect you to say it out loud when we get there too. I, so the, kind of the point that he's getting to, and I, and I hope hopefully we will get to this point um, at the end of this, but I, I want to start with just just thinking about the the reality that how often are we not motivated to do good things like like how 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 often do we just don't like feel like doing the right thing like it's not a matter of of knowing um it's not a matter of uh, of whether of sort of discerning or figuring out uh, what we should be doing, but I think a lot of us have been in a situation where, man, we just don't feel like doing the right thing. We just don't, we're not motivated. Um, and I, and I, 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 I sympathize with that. There's times, even when, even when you're working through a passage or you get a chance to study or, or whatever, whatever good thing you enjoy, even sometimes those things that we enjoy, we're just numb. We're not really motivated to do those things. And sometimes the, 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 the wind in our sails gets, gets taken out of us. And I think this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to help us wrestle with. He, he wants us to have earnestness. He wants us to not be, be, be sluggish is the word that he uses at the end in, in doing the right things. So we kind of have this, have this long sort of argument that ends with this idea of, hey, if you're, if you're tracking with me, if you're understanding what I'm saying, I'm trying to encourage you, or I'm trying to give you what he says is full assurance so that we have the motivation, so that we have the desire in the end to love one another. 
so we have the desire to do what is good so that, so that we're not just willing to do what is good, so that we're earnest, that we're, we're like excited to do what's good. And I think that's where he, he's trying to get us. And we're gonna go through a, a couple sections. We're gonna talk about the, the beauty of the priest. We're gonna talk about the danger um, if, if those realities are dull or, or maybe boring is another way to put it, if they're dull. And then we're gonna kind of end with uh, the motivation the, the actual, the, the thing that can stir our affections in a way that motivates us, that, that encourages us to, to press on uh, and to do what's good. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, let me take a second to pray for us and we'll just jump right into the passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that even your text acknowledges the reality that we are weak Thank you that your word knows that we are often sluggish um, and we are not earnest in, in doing good. Um, but you, you come to us and you, you give us a, a high priest who um, can sympathize with our weakness. You give us a, a high priest who, who learned obedience to you through what he suffered um, but you give us a high priest who is forever sitting at the throne and interceding on our behalf. And um, he doesn't, he, he accomplishes what he sets out to do. Lord, he is, a, he is a go-between that brings us to you, that gives us motivation, that encourages us with your presence, Lord. And I pray that this morning, that's what you would do. Amen. I pray that through your spirit in a supernatural way, we would just get a taste of your presence so that we could be stirred, so that we could be motivated, so that we could be eager to reflect you to others. So give us uh, attention, give, us, give me clarity, even as we walk through this kind of long passage, and um, wisdom as we desire to be refreshed by you. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so let's look at uh, verse 14 in chapter four. It's kind of a transition from the last section. He says, since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. This idea of passed through the heavens is just connecting to some of the, the Sabbath themes that we've talked about over the last few weeks. Um, uh, Jesus has rested as God has rested on the seventh day. Jesus has dealt with all the brokenness in the world. He has, he has done the, the six days of labor, so to speak, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is now face-to-face -face with God, resting in a way that all of us look forward to. We, we, ha we now have a high priest who has, who has, who's, who's made it. We, we have someone who has passed through the heavens. He says, Jesus, the Son of God, so let us hold fast our confession. He's like, look, we, we know that he's made it all the way through. And he, he kind of calls us to, to cling to, to take, to hold fast a handful of times in this passage leading up. So he's, he's like, look, we, we've confessed that Jesus is better than the angels. We've confessed that he's building a he's, he's the builder of the house, that, that he's greater than Moses. We've, we've said all of these things. So let's, let's cling to this reality that Jesus has made it through and let's hold fast to the, the true and wonderful things that we confess about Jesus. And he goes on in verse 15, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
And so he gives us this grand picture of who Jesus is over the first few chapters. He tells us that he's our high priest. And then it's an interesting sort of shift here. He says, we actually have someone who knows what it's like. He, he didn't just pass through and end up in the, in the heavenly places and not know how to sympathize with the, with the brokenness in the world. He, he, was, he was often tempted to feel discouraged or sluggish, tempted to feel, feel discouraged about not wanting to do the right thing, tempted um, to respond to situations in a poor way, tempted in every way to ignore the very presence of God, tempted yet without sin, with perfection, he never, he never fell prey to those temptations, but he, but he understands what it's like to be in this broken world and to be looking forward to the glory that's set before him. Yes, Lord. So verse 16 says, then let us, in light of all this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Since we have such a wonderful high priest He's saying you can confidently, even in your weakness, you can confidently go before a holy God, a holy God who loves you and cares for you. And when you have needs, you can go to him and receive grace. And it's almost like this section is almost like a summary section of of where he's going. He kind of starts off and gives these grand things about Jesus as our, as our high priest and the fact that he is the son of God, the fact that he has passed through the heavens, the fact that he can sympathize with our weakness. But we haven't really talked about what is a high priest. And he, and he makes this statement that we can, go, we can actually go into the very presence of God. You and I can go into the very presence of God and receive help, receive help from God. And the fact that we can do that is related to what he does as a high priest. So he, so he kind of gives us this little summary statement where he's talking about Jesus and now he's going on. He's like, you know what? Well, let's just talk about this idea of a high priest first. Let's, let's sort of, uh, if we want to wrestle with the beauty and the wonder of Jesus as our high priest, we have to know a little bit about what an actual high priest does. So he goes on in chapter five to kind of help us understand that. What do high priests do? Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. There's a lot of theology sort of packed into that sentence. (laughs) But simply put, because of our sin, we're separated from God. Because of our sin, we should not have confidence to go before the throne of God. We should be a little hesitant to do that because we rebel against our king because of our sin. But in the Old Testament, they kind of had the same problem. God's presence was in the tabernacle. Uh, God's presence was on the flaming mountain. And they were like, hey, how about you talk to God about the rest of what he has to say? I'm not a fan of of approaching God in that way. And so God instituted a a, a sacrificial system, introduced a priesthood, so that someone could be a go-between and that go-between could help the rest of the community approach God in the temple. And this is what the priests did. So they offer gifts and sacrifices so that the rest of the people could actually approach God in a way so that they, they could receive grace in time of need. Amen. Verse two, he kind of goes on talking about those priests, which 
I feel like this is like super frank. He's like, well, that, the priest that God chose for men can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward <laughs> since he himself is beset with weakness. He's like, the priest that he's chosen among men, they get you because they are terrible like you. <laughs> You're like, thanks. Thanks for, for, for saying it, you know, so, so straightforward like that. And they say, because he's broken, because there's, he, is, he has weakness, the, the priest that's chosen among men, that priest has to, in verse three, says, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. So he's going on to continue to explain this idea of the priest. It's not like the priest that, that is chosen among men has, is any more special to approach God. He may, be, he may help us approach God. He may be a go-between, but, but the priests that have been around uh, in, the, in sort of the Old Testament system were, were also with sin. So they, they also have to offer sacrifices so that they themselves can approach God. In verse four, he says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So he's, he's, he's going back and he's talking about the priesthood in the Old Testament. He's sort of explaining that to us so that he can, so that he can sort of show us the beauty and the glory of the priesthood of Christ. And he gives us this opening statement that talks about the wonders of Jesus, the fact that he's passed through, the fact that he's our high priest, the fact that he can sympathize even with us, even though he, he had no sin, and the fact that he, he can bring us into the presence of God. We, because of that priest, we can approach God with confidence in ways that we could never have done before. And he explains the, the uh, ironic priesthood or the priest in the Old Testament. He's like, okay, now that you kind of got a grip on what a priest does, let me give you a little more information on how beautiful the priest of Jesus is. Let, let me break it down for you why Jesus is, why I started with this reality that Jesus is just so wonderful. He goes on in verse five, he says, just like these other priests, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, he's quoting Psalm two, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you know, even the author of Hebrews doesn't have to give us the reference every time. Uh, so in some other place, he said this thing, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he's saying, Jesus, Jesus, just like all the other priests, didn't just put himself in this position. Jesus didn't decide he was a priest because no one decides that they're a priest. God appoints them as a priest. And so he says, just like the priests that were chosen in the past, now God has chosen for us a better priest. And he, and he, and he even prophesied about this as he, as he goes back into the Old Testament and he, he brings up this, uh, this order of Melchizedek. And we'll talk more about that in some of the future chapters, but I just wanna get the comparison here between Jesus and the priests that are in the Old Testament. So Jesus was chosen to be that better priest. And in verse seven, it says, in the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So he's comparing the priest. He's saying, even Jesus, who, I, who I've already told you is without sin, was, was offering up prayers and supplications. He was, he was going between all of us who are broken and this holy God and in this world, even when he was in this world, in, in the flesh, he's saying, uh, uh, in the par, still part of the old broken creation. He's saying, even when he was there, he was, he was interceding for us. He was praying for his people. He had his heart concerned for only you. 
And, and he's interceding and he's asking the Lord uh, to, to rescue him and to rescue others and to bring those people into the presence of God. And he's saying that he was heard. God heard him. Verse 80 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Which is fascinating comparison from the other priests. They're like, they were kind of broken, so they kind of knew what was up already, you know. Jesus had no sin. He actually experienced the temptation to, to, to not consider the Lord. He experienced the temptation to not be zealous for good works. And he learned what that was like through suffering. He had to take on flesh just so he could sympathize with us and, and know what it feels like to be pulled away from the presence of God and to, to, to learn in the sense to experience this, this active obedience that he did his entire life through suffering. He did that for us. And then in verse nine, we're, we're again, we're comparing this to the, the, the priest of old, because now I'm being made perfect, being made complete, the fact that he can now sympathize with, with all of our temptations, but without sin. He became, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's like, now that Jesus has done, has, has done everything possible to be a better, more, uh, to be a better to priest in the way that he understands us, to be a better priest in the reality that he had never had any sin, God has appointed him to be the source of eternal salvation. And he's going to go on and explain more of this idea of eternality, more of this idea of what it means to be in the order of Melchizedek. But he's, he gave us a sort of introductory statement about the beauty and the glory of Christ as our high priest. He is the one that actually goes between us and God. He is the one that knows what it's like to suffer in this world. And now because he's been made perfect, now because there's no other priest appointed for salvation, now because he's been made perfect, obedience to this priest is what brings us into the presence of God. Obedience to this beautiful, wonderful priest is what enables us to have eternal salvation. Eternal salvation. Timeless rescue from everything that's broken in the world. He enables us to pass through the heavens so that you and I can be face to face with God, so that you and I can experience his presence, so that we can have a better priest that brings us, his people, into the presence of God. He's trying to explain to us the beauty of the priesthood. And in the middle of all of that, he stops and says, I'd like to tell you more, but you ain't listening. <laughs> About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Ouch. Why the sidetrack here? 
can't we just keep going about how awesome Jesus is? And he'll jump back on that train. But he's, he's concerned. He's telling us about all these wonderful, beautiful things about who Jesus is and what he's doing as a priest. But he's, he's worried about the danger if it's dull. We talked about the beauty of the priest. That's kind of how he started. But this, this is, he's, he's going off on this kind of, this tangent here because he's worried about the danger if it's dull. The danger if the, the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Jesus as our priest is something that, that sort of falls on deaf ears. And I imagine he's, he's addressing this to a congregation of people that he's prayed for. A congregation of people that he cares for, that, that he obviously knows and is intimate with. And he's saying all these wonderful things about Jesus. And he's like, I want to go on and I want to explain more. But, I, but first I have to say what I'm concerned about. First I have to, to plead with you to examine yourself. Say, before we go on to some of the more beautiful things, I'm worried that these are falling on deaf ears. And he says a little bit more in the next couple of verses. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's interesting even how he explains maturity. He's saying, I, as, we, as we grow in our understanding of the beauty of the gospel, as we are, uh, approach different circumstances in our lives, uh, we, we, we have to practice what it looks like to know what's right and to not know what's right. Life is complicated. And, and as we grow in maturity, we're exposed to more circumstances where, where we're, we're, we're wondering how can we honor the Lord? What would it look like to do the right thing over here? Uh, and, and we're finite. And so these things don't just, uh, don't just, we just don't have all the information all the time, he's saying. So part of maturity is understanding what it means to, to love my neighbor well. Part, part of maturity is, is deciphering what does it mean to show inward love to those in my community? What does it mean to show outward love to those who I interact with? How do I, how do I balance all those things? How do I know what honors and glorifies the Lord? And he's saying that's, that's part of maturity is figuring those things out. And he's concerned. He's concerned that he's gonna go on to the solid food about the beauty of the priesthood when some people in the audience may need milk. And I... Um, you know, when, when we babysat Quinn when she was more little or any of the other kiddos, and you're like, well, can't they just eat like this thing? And they're like, no, <laughs> milk, <laughs> don't. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now I'm like, they're toddlers. And I'm like, can I feed them this yet? You know, like, oh yeah, they eat whatever you're eating, you know? <laughs> so there's like a, there's a transition from, from the milk that they need that they can take in volumes that's easy on their digestive system uh, that, that sort of, that helps them out, but then they shouldn't be eating solid food. And, and he's saying like, well, I'm, I'm worried that if you're not, he's not talking about um, non-Christian Christian. He's just saying, if you, if you trust in the Lord, if you believe the gospel and we go on to these, these higher 
order things about the wonder and the beauty of the priesthood, I'm worried I might be giving you solid food and we can't go there if you really need milk. If you really need to, to have some basic things so that you can discern the difference between good and evil. And I love how he goes on in chapter six. And I'd like to think this is because of just his care and his compassion for those in his community. Even though he said some really hard things a few verses earlier, he says, therefore, let us, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He includes himself in that. He's like, these are, these are wonderful things. The, the milk is great. <laughs> let, let us leave these things together. Uh, let, let us together, let us work on discerning good from evil. And let, let, let us as a community go on to deeper and more wonderful things. And he gives us an interesting little list, an interesting little list of what those sort of, what he calls basic principles. Uh, or here we have uh, a foundation. Not, it says not laying again a foundation. And I, and I think when we talk about foundation, we're talking about sort of in our, in our Christian experience, uh, when, when we uh, are converted and we are wrestling with the truths about God, there's certain foundational things that, that we have to understand and believe to just kind of have an idea of what it means to be connected to Jesus. What does it mean to be part of the Christian community? What does it mean to have a realization that I'm, I'm sinful and I, and I need a, a priest to step in and, and go between us? So he, he goes on to tell us some of these foundational things. And the first foundation is that of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. I mean, how foundational is that? I, I, I like in Mark, when Jesus starts his ministry, I think I have this uh, verse up on the screen, Mark 1, verses 14. Um, can you go to the next slide? I can just see it. It's easier. Um, Mark 1, verse 14. This is, this is the very beginning of the Gospels. And we're looking at potentially doing this gospel as a church at the beginning of next year. But this is the very beginning of the gospel. And, and, and after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. At the very beginning, Jesus himself is saying, you know what a basic reality of the kingdom of God is? Turn from the way you see the world. Turn from the things you believe about yourself and have faith in the way God sees the world. Have faith in the way God views you. Have faith in the things that Jesus is showing up in Mark doing for you. So I think what the, the author of Hebrews is saying, before we can move on, if, if, this, if this beauty of Jesus is the idea of his priesthood has become dull to you, reflect. Reflect and say, have I thought about things that I need to repent of and faith that I need to have in God? Have I considered the basic principles of turning from my sin and embracing the beauty and the wonder of the gospel? Because if you haven't started there, then the fact that you have someone interceding for you as a priest is kind of dull. You don't, you don't need intercession if you're not wrestling with your sin. So he's telling us about these basic principles so that we would see the beauty and the wonder of the priesthood. The next ones are, are a little more uh, complicated than that. That's an easy one. Jesus just says it right there for us. 
He says, of the instructions about washing, the laying on of hands. Instructions about washing and the laying on of hands. Uh, it, you know, if you look at the little footnote, it says, or baptisms, or baptisms. And there's, there's some debate, there's some question about some of these things, but I think the, the simplest way to understand baptisms in the, in the laying on of hands is we just, we just kind of look at our Bible and we sort of say, well, how do we, when, are, when, is, when does someone lay on hands? Like what happens there? Um, and there's a handful of times that people lay on hands for something. Uh, one of the ones that comes up is when they, they appoint a, an officer in the church, like an elder or deacon, they all kind of lay hands and, uh, and, and sort of uh, go through this like official way of a, appointing someone uh, into the office. Not really a, a basic foundational thing, um, but it is one of the ways that they lay on hands. I think the most simple way to read this as far as baptisms and laying on of hands is in Acts, whenever there was a lot of times where someone received the Holy Spirit and, and they did that when they lay on hands. They, they believe, but sometimes they, they didn't yet have the Spirit and so the, the disciples go and they lay hands on them and then they receive the Spirit. So I think what he's talking about when he talks about baptism and laying on his hands, he's talking about the Holy Spirit's supernatural work to unite us to Christ, to, to, to baptize us into Christ, into his death and his resurrection. When we talk about the, the, the physical act of baptism, the, we, we say that that's pointing us to another baptism, that's pointing us to our connection and our union with Christ. And he's saying, yes, faith and repentance, those are things that we should understand, those are basic things, but also the fact that you and I have been baptized, not just by water, but into Christ. You're connected to him in a way that's done through the laying on of hands and the supernatural receiving of the Holy Spirit. So every single one of God's people who, who has repented and, and turned to faith and trust in Christ has been united to Jesus himself, has been, has been baptized into Christ, which is seen through the act of baptism and has received the supernatural Holy Spirit who's equipped you to see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Christ. It's like, we, we, need to, we need to wrestle with this. We need to believe this. We need to understand this if we're gonna see and be amazed at what Jesus is doing as a high priest. He goes on to say, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. I think those are a little more simple. We have our hope in a future glory. Jesus says, if, if Paul says, if, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then of all the religions, we're the most to be pitied. Because that's what we look forward to. <laughs> we, we have a priest that's gonna ensure that you and I are, are, have eternal salvation. It's kind of the way he says it earlier. And, and final judgment is like a scary uh, topic and things that we don't like talk about a whole lot. But man, there's a lot of injustice in the world. A lot of people get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. All of us can confidently say they won't get away with that. All of us can confidently say either that was taken out on Christ on the cross or whatever these people did should be punished or the wrongs that happened, someday they will stand before God and have to give an account for every wrong thought, action, person they hurt, and God will ensure that perfect justice happens. 
either in Christ, baptized into Christ, who went through that, or standing before God himself. There is going to be perfect justice. No one will get away with anything. He's reminding us of these things because he's worried about the danger of the gospel becoming dull. He's worried about the danger of the beauty and the wonder of Christ becoming something that's ho-hum. And he goes on to warn in the next couple of verses. Actually, I like in verse three. He's like, let us move on from these basic things and this we will do if God permits. He's, he's acknowledging the necessity of God to step in and help us see, to help us have faith. It's a gift to help us turn from our sin, to help us trust in the resurrection, to help us see the beauty and the wonder of the Holy Spirit and the fact that we're united to Christ. He's like, let us move on from these topics, these foundational important topics so that we can see more of the beauty and wonder of Christ if God, if God permits us to do this. And he warns us, he says, for it's impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a, a, a difficult passage. Um, when you read commentators and they start the section by saying, okay, this is really hard for me. And I'm like, oh man, you guys wrote a book that's like this big. So if you're letting me know it's difficult from the beginning, uh, this is gonna be hard for me. But it's a, hard, it's a hard passage to sort of make sense of because he's told us already why others fell away. He's told us that the, the, the people who didn't enter the promised land fell away because they were not united. They were not baptized into Christ through faith. And so as we, we look at this passage, we're trying to make sense of what he's saying. What does it mean that's impossible and that, that somebody falls away and that there's no hope? What, what is he saying? And I think we have, to, we have to sort of balance this passage with the things that are spoken much, much more clearly in other parts of scripture. Clearly anyone who has the spirit indwelling in them, not, not uh, what is the phrase that he uses? Sh uh, sharing in the Holy Spirit. It's different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who's been baptized into Christ, Colossians says, has been transferred from one kingdom to another one. From the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's an objective transfer there. God does not have buyer's remorse. He transfers us and we're there and that's where we stay. But he's warning us about those who would be exposed to all the good and wonderful things that God is doing and it would, it would, it would become more and more dull and at the end of the day would produce nothing. He gives us this warning. He says that these are, these are impossible things for, for us because he wants us to turn to and cling to the Lord. He gives us these warnings and has concerns for this people that he's talking to, as, as, I'm, as he's, I'm sure he's prayed for and considered and, and wrote to and got to know the community that he's writing to. 
And he's saying, I'm worried. I'm worrying that you'd be exposed to all of these wonderful, beautiful things about Christ, these foundational things, and that they would just become more and more dull. And at the end of the day, you would fall away. He's warning us because God uses those means. God uses that warning to sort of rattle us intentionally. This, this is a way in which God's people recognize that maybe I'm in this boat, maybe these things are becoming more dull for me, and if I allow this to continue, that's a dangerous place to be in. And I think that's explained in the analogy that he uses. In verse seven, he says, let me give you an example, basically. For land that has drunk the rain, all these wonderful things that come from the spirit of God, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Like when we're exposed to all these wonderful things about God, when, it, when, it, when rain falls in, on land and it produces a crop, that's a blessing. We're thankful for that. But he compares it, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Its end is to be burned. He's warning the people that he cares about that if this idea of, of the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is becoming less and less attractive to you, maybe it's because you need to take a look at some of the basic principles, some of the, some of the foundational things. Maybe he's saying, I want you, brothers and sisters, to examine yourself. And if you're exposed to all of these wonderful things about God and what comes out of you is not more love, is not more peace, is not more joy, is not more awe in who Jesus is. Go back to the milk. Go back to repentance and trusting in a God who's capable. Go back to, to seeing the Holy Spirit as a supernatural enabler that, can, that may be impossible for us, but can produce fruit on a ground that, that otherwise was bearing thorns and thistles. Go back to the reality that your hope is put in the resurrection. Go back to these basic things because if, if the beauty and wonder of Jesus is something that's just not there for you, that's dangerous. He's like, I love you. I want you to consider these things so that you're, you're in awe, so that you're, you're just struck by who Jesus is and what he's doing. I don't want that to become dull for you. That's a real temptation. He's concerned. He goes on in verse nine to kind of encourage us, I think. We go from the, the beauty of the priest. We go from the, the, the danger if it's dull. And I think I said the motivation of full assurance. The motivation of full assurance. This is kind of where I began we don't, we, don't, we don't always feel like zeal for doing the right things. We don't, we don't always, we, uh, we feel kind of sluggish when it comes to, 
to stepping forward and honoring God with our lives. Sometimes we might feel like we've been rained on, but thorns and thistles are the only things that are coming out. And I like what he says. He wants to encourage you. He says, though we speak in this way, the serious warning, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And he's bringing us back to that original reality of, the, of our priest, of our, our go-between who brings us back to God and he brings us his eternal salvation in the very presence of God. And he says, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you because verse 10, he goes on to give us why he is encouraged by the people in his community. He says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He's like, I've seen the rain pour on the ground of your lives and I'm encouraged. I see things that belong to salvation because I see of your love for the saints. I see of your care for one another. I see the spirit in you producing more love, more peace, more joy. I'm encouraged by that. And I like how he says, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work. Because a lot of what we do gets overlooked. <laughs> you know, just thinking about some of the parents, how many times have you done something to love your child that no one else saw or cared about? Like all morning, right? <laughs> no one sees that. They think, be encouraged. God doesn't overlook those things. God knows that when you considered him and stepped out in faith and, and loved someone that no one else saw you do any of that, he sees that. He sees your care for others. That should be something that encourages you. And he kind of tells us why he gives us this warning. He wants to motivate us with full assurance. He says, and, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. He's like, I want you, all of you, as you examine your life and see the spirit work, as you, as you, as you look at the basic principles of faith and repentance, as you believe that there's a Holy Spirit connecting you to Jesus and equipping you in a way to bear fruit, as you look forward to the resurrection, as you trust the fact that God is the ultimate judge and perfect justice will be spelled out someday. I want you to have full assurance of the reality that you have a priest that's working to bring you into the presence of God. I want that to be a refreshment to you. I, I want you to know that the, the competency of Jesus how much better he is, how capable he is to, to draw you back into the presence of God and to give you joy and peace and, and, and love and patience and all of those things. He's a competent savior. And because you are connected to him, he will bring you into the presence of God. I want every one of you to have full assurance of that. I want you to go home and have no doubt that Jesus is capable of bringing you into God's presence so that you can worship him and enjoy him today and forever. That's what Jesus is capable of doing. And if you're certain of that, 
If you have assurance of that, if you have no doubt that Jesus can bring me into the very presence of God, verse 12, you won't be sluggish. You'll have something better. So he wants all of that full assurance so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there's a lot of reasons why we don't want to do the right thing. People are disappointing. Situations are difficult. The world is broken, painful. Life is hard sometimes. But if we're confident that we're connected to Christ, if we're confident that we have a capable, eternal priest that goes between us and God and is able to bring us into God's presence, is able today to give us an experience of God himself, that's motivating. That's encouraging. That can bring joy in situations where there's no joy. That can bring love for others because of the fullness of the love that you have from God the Father himself. You don't need it from other people. And if you're confident in that, if you're confident in your place with Christ and you have that full assurance, you can look at the perfect priest. We can talk about the wonders and the beauties of this eternal person that's been made perfect, that's bringing us to God, and you could be motivated by that. We're gonna talk more about this reality of the priesthood of Jesus, but I think, he, I think he sidetracked us a little bit and said, hey, watch out. If this is becoming dull to you, go back to the foundations. Look at faith, look at repentance, remind yourself of the spirit, look forward to the resurrection because there's so much more beautiful things about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And if you have this full assurance of what he is accomplishing, that's gonna be a motivator. That's gonna be encouraging. That's gonna give you patience as we look forward to inheriting the promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these warnings that force us to consider things we may not often consider. Thank you for the beauty of everything that Jesus has accomplished, everything he's doing today. Man, what we look forward to seeing him and being made like him. Lord, help us get a taste of the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of your presence so that, so that we have the patience to inherit the promises. Lord, you can expose us to who you are because of what Jesus has done. That's a wonder. And I pray that that'd be more of a wonder, more of an encouragement. And out of that would come fruit in us that brings you more glory and more honor because of our love for one another. Thank you for this time and just a moment this morning to stop and worship you, Lord. I pray that we would consider you today.
on your day. In your name I pray, amen.